For many, there's nothing more all-consuming and enticing than the topic of food. It's the reason why cooking shows are so universally popular, why restaurant reviews garner attention, and why we find an excuse to dine together with friends, family, and workmates. In these maddening times, food offers comfort, conjures up memories, and nurtures the body. Unfortunately, food the world over is not what it once was. Whether in pursuit of economic profit or in a bid to deliver greater variety at lower prices, mass-manufactured food has its benefits and its drawbacks. Walk through the aisles of any major grocery shopping chain anywhere in the world and you're inundated with choice. Variety, you might say, is the hallmark of the world's leading food and beverage companies. Manufacturers like PepsiCo, Nestle, Mars, Kraft Heinz, and Suntory are among the largest in a list of hundreds of processed food providers. So what's the problem, you ask? In a word, nutrition. In recent decades, global eating habits have shifted dramatically, enticed by the manufactured tastes and low price points of thousands of sugary, salty, and artificially conjured food products. The health impact is apparent. Obesity, diabetes, and heart disease are modern-day ailments that plague populations the world over, perpetuated by our increasingly sedentary lifestyle choices. It's not entirely the fault of big food. After all, they aren't force-feeding us. We choose when, what, and how much to eat. But humans, especially when it comes to food, are weak-spirited and easily swayed, and the industry knows it. Every year, manufacturers spend lavishly on advertising, $240 billion in the U.S. alone. Thousands of products compete each day for a piece of the consumer palate. It's big business, but it also has big consequences. Here to unpack the subject is Isabel de Sitter, CEO of Singapore-based ID Capital. She's a future of food advocate, an investor, and a convener of food innovators. In this episode of Inside Asia, we talk all about food, the consequences of big food domination, and efforts in place to produce alternative choices that are both good and good for you. Isabel de Sitra, thank you so much for joining us on Inside Asia. You are CEO of ID Capital, and we're going to talk about food today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me today, Steve. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, I want to ask you as a starting question, do we have a food problem? And if so, is it a matter of quantity, quality, or availability? We do have a problem with food. Whether you're living in a rich country or in a developing country, you have a problem. Not the same, but we do have a problem. I would like to start with a note of optimism. If we have a problem today, it's also because we've solved other problems. People live longer lives. And big food has done an amazing job in providing cheap food to the many. So um, if you look at the 800 million people today who don't have access to affordable, nutritious diets, what has changed is they are getting enough food it's not just good food, it's calories. And so our next challenge is, is better food for the many. And better means healthier and more sustainable. And let me go back to this notion of um, sustainable for the planet before we go into the problems of us as consumers and individuals. So one of the things that has gone wrong is this notion of biodiversity. I give you a very simple example. There used to be so many varieties of bananas, and now we have the Cavendish. So economically, it's been very efficient. It's brilliant. This kind of standardization means that you can be very efficient at the farm level. And also on the supermarket shelves, 
every banana looks like the same and consumers like it. Consumers really like this consistency. But on the other hand, biologically speaking, it's the recipe for a disaster because all these Cavendish bananas are essentially clones. And so a disease like the Panama, the Panama disease can be wiping out the production. So now you have people trying to find solutions to the Panama disease. So the loss of biodiversity is one of the big problems. And it trickles down into our diets because we are eating essentially um, poor calories very often. And these calories are generating a lot of problems on, on the health. So, Isabel, let's take a category like fruit, for instance. So you mentioned a banana uh, and all the varieties that existed before. Is it the consumer that wants that perfectly yellow, large bunch of bananas with no faults or bruises uh, or, or the ripe red apple with, uh, you know, no wormholes or um, perfectly shaped and perfectly formed? Or is it the industry saying if we can make it look more appealing it more people will buy it. In other words, has it been a necessity for people to design food this way in order to raise uh, uh, purchases? Or, or, or is it something that um, in the process of doing this, we've destroyed biodiversity and therefore um, undone some of the enriching aspects of what a real human diet should look like? I don't believe consumers woke up one day, raised their hand and they said, we want apples to all look the same but they've gotten used to it and they've gotten used to require it. Um, there is a lot of efficiency if you can standardize production and farming operations. So um, the reason behind you know, um, standardized species and genetic materials, the reason behind monoculture is efficiency. And the problem comes from there. So then, because you end up having less variety, consumers are getting used to a certain type of look for their product, for their produce, for their fruits, for their vegetables, and they get to like it. And now you have very interesting startups, and I, I find their work admirable, um, called, for instance, Ugly Food, and they teach consumers to enjoy an ugly food because the ugly food is very tasty, it's very good, there is nothing wrong with this. There is just a little bruise that would make it ineligible to supermarket shelves. Right. And there's also the issue of processed foods um, and all the varieties uh, and types of, of let's say, uh, breakfast cereals. I, I, I've recently come back to the United States, walked into a large supermarket uh, two days ago, and was overwhelmed with the variety available, uh, hundreds and hundreds of different types of, of breakfast cereals, and take any category you want. Again, it's almost sub-segmenting the types of tests and tastes and preferences that exist in the marketplace. Um, this is what big food is really good at. Uh, are, are you concerned about this? And do you think that in a time of COVID and, you know, challenges around uh, supply chains, that maybe we are at a moment of inflection, that the food industry is going to have to start to rethink uh, its varieties, its marketings, its extensions, and therefore reduce and focus more on quality foods versus quantity food? Oh, absolutely. Your example of um, breakfast cereals is a case in point. I grew up in, in a country, France, where you thrive for these kind of uh, American diets. And you had this notion of continental breakfast, where in essence, when you look at the composition of where you're having your plate and bowl, this is sugar. Because you've been said that oranges is very healthy. So go for a glass of oranges, and then you take your breakfast cereals, and it's full of sugar. Whether it's added or not, doesn't make a huge difference because in essence, these are just plain cereals. 
and processed cereals. And bear with me, I have nothing against processed food in general. Processed food is also healthy food because you don't have foodborne pathogen. But the problem is the lack of variety. And interestingly, when you look at Asian breakfast habits, they are very different. By the way, it's quite an effort when you're not born in this culture to enjoy this breakfast, but they are richer in proteins. And that's very much needed. So I really believe, um, as you said, that there needs to be a change. And another thing which is not very often kept in mind is um, pig food is not just responsible for it. We eat this because we enjoy it. There is a bit of an addiction in eating sugar and fat. By the way, it's very well researched and more and more documented that it generates addiction. It gives you a sense of control, of comfort. We just like it. Well, you raise an important, important point here, which is, uh, and, and, and it, 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 it prompts the question, why hasn't the Food and Drug Administration and all its in-country equivalents stood up to protect consumer interests, particularly when it comes to um, the selling and marketing of high-processed, high-sugary foods, which obviously are creating some major health issues across the world? Oh, it's a very complex question. I'm not sure I have a good answer. And I would like to look at the future more than the past. But to, to answer your point, I think we are reaching a time where governments are all taking coordinated action to, to address obesity and diabetes. They haven't in the past. Why? Long, long, long story. Maybe the pressure from big uh, multinational companies, the pressure from some agricultural lobbies. All this has come into play. What I can just say today is you take the US, you take European countries, they have implemented policies to contribute to reducing childhood obesity and simple things which would, should have happened before, like you know, regulating vending machines inside schools or uh, zoning to restrict fast food outlets, and then labeling and, and value sizing and also uh, regulating food advertising. Has it come too late? Most likely, yes, but it is what it is. We are living in this world. So are, are some of the big food companies waking up to this fact, uh, take being proactive, um, deciding that they're going to shift uh, and think more about the health qualities or health implications of the food that they sell and manufacture? Or are we going to, is it up to the consumers uh, where possible to identify and be better informed and better educated on which foods, why, and what to avoid? It's both. Big food companies will always tell you, you build your um, balance in terms of calories and, and food, you build your balance over a day and a week. There is nothing wrong in snacking. There is nothing wrong in eating a pack of chips. What is a problem if it's, if it's becoming your daily routine? That's the issue. So all food companies are working on it. And the mass of research behind what is healthy diet is, is increasing. And it's a good thing because for many decades, food and nutrition has been left behind. And the science behind food and nutrition is relatively in its infancy when you look at other sectors of research. It's not that simple. The basics are very simple and very transversal, but we are just waking up to the fact that between you and me, the metabolic response of what we are eating might be very different. So you might tell me it's a first world problem. Yes, but at the same time, it's important to not just talk calories, but also talk 
micronutrient, micronutrients, and so on and so forth. You know, among among those that can afford variety and and have uh, the the ability to purchase the kinds of foods they prefer, I, this strikes me. This moment in time is similar to the organic movement ten years ago, where lots of people were interested in eating organic, but the price point was much higher because of the uh, supply and demand issues, the economies of scale. You just didn't have the same type of mass uh, manufacturing or development or farming and processing of of organic foods, and therefore you couldn't get the price point down, or so they argued. Now it seems very trendy to go farm to table. Uh, freshness is what people look for, uh, things that are not processed. Um, and, and, and I understand the positive health implications, but it's a bit of a luxury, is it not? Oh, yes, absolutely. When you can afford, it's not too difficult to eat well. You may opt for an, a healthy diet, but at least you have an option. You know this concept of the uh, food desserts in the U.S., where everywhere you go, it's impossible to find fresh food. That's an issue. And you go to supermarkets, and the least healthy calories are always the cheapest. Why? Because basic crops such as corn, soybeans, they are used to such an extent that, you know, they are becoming, you cannot beat them in terms of economics. And they've been heavily subsidized for generations and generations. So in simple terms, um, the root of obesity epidemic and health-related problems is really um, a question of income. The biggest prediction of obesity is income. And, and you were saying before subsidized. So governments have subsidized uh, big food industries in order to generate certain types of foods for their population. Again, at least having the quantity, but not the quality. Is that correct? Yeah, it's at the food level, at the food processing level, at the agricultural level. Why have a richer stage of monocultures? Because on certain KPIs, it was more efficient. But these KPIs were never encompassing the bigger impact on the planet's health. That's what we are hitting today. You know, it, it, let's bring this right up to the current period and this outbreak of COVID. Even before the outbreak, the world appeared to be getting sicker, not stronger. Modern diseases, as you pointed out, like diabetes, heart disease, and cancer are now leading causes of death and illness. Uh, to what degree has the shift in diet impacted our health? Um, and 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 do we do is it is it dawning on governments that actually those individuals who are compromised with pre-existing diseases or kind of conditions uh, either uh, imposed by certain diets or not um, actually need to be eating and taking better care of themselves. So do you anticipate some pushback on big food uh, or campaigns that raise awareness around quality food, quality calories, healthier eating and habit, e eating habits? Hmm, it's a complex question. First, we know so little about how COVID works. Really, in essence, you would believe driven by common sense that the healthier you are pre-COVID, the better you will resist. And if you have a healthy uh, body, your first line of defense is stronger against COVID. But we've seen, you know, counter examples. We've seen people who are perfectly healthy and they've been severely hit by COVID. So I would like to say on the, on the one side, I'm really aware of how little we know about the exact mechanism of action of COVID. On the other side, um, just paraphrasing Bill Gates, COVID is awful, but climate change is worse. And climate change is happening right now. And climate change has impact on 
you know, uh, weather events that used to be called extraordinary weather events that be, that's becoming the norm. So it drives residential instability, not just in the developing markets, of course, very much in the developing markets, but also in, in developed markets. And this is triggering a series of problems for many people, which are, you know, um, the likes of anxiety, depression, or loss of sense of control. So COVID is one thing, climate change is another one. And back to your question on whether the food and diets have been responsible for the situation we are today. Yes, definitely. And governments are taking charge. I just give you a couple of statistics, maybe. In China, 13% of medical costs are related to diabetes. And the estimation is that by 2030, these costs associated to diabetes will reach 47 billion US dollars. So the governments are taking action. Right. And given the fact that these are public health care uh, organizations, in other words, these countries uh, need to fund the support of health care, um, you would suspect that they'd step in and want to do something about it. They need it. They need it. And I wouldn't say there are governments which are insensitive to it. They're all trying their best to address it. But it's a very complex issue because, you know, the Western style diet is really something which is desired by many emerging uh, categories of the population. They, they thrive for it. And so they go for higher salt, sugar, cheap vegetable oil, and animal fat content. And this is triggering this fast-rising increase in what you call non-communicable diseases in, in low- and middle-income countries, which you see big time in Asia, because that's where all the demographic phenomena are amplified by the size of the region and its dynamics. You know, what, why it, it really does raise some questions around um, whether or not the big food industry should be reevaluating or self-evaluating in this moment. If they know that they are contributing to some of these, these issues and their response is, well, people enjoy it, they're free to purchase what they want, um, we're simply providing them food options, uh, they're also creating problems, uh, whether they know it or not, and I, they clearly do know it. Do, do you believe or have you seen uh, big food or some examples of big food starting to take ownership and responsibility of this and without any pressure from government actually making decisions to change the content and quality of the food that they're manufacturing and marketing? They all do. But you would probably find it way too slow, given the nature and the time bomb of the problem. So what government can do is they can create incentives, they can create nudges, they can tax, and they are taxing sugar. It's highly debated whether it's popular. I wouldn't say it's a highly popular thing, but they're, they're, they're accelerating what big food companies need to do in any case. So it sounds like they're borrowing a page from the tobacco industry, uh, tax mm -hmm. uh, cigarettes, and, and, and the hope is you would reduce uh, consumption of cigarettes. Is, is, is that what you're saying? Is this, this similar approach with sugar? At the moment on sugar, yes, very much so. Is it a bad thing? I tend to believe it has worked for tobacco. Um, when you look at advertising campaigns a few generations ago, you're, you, you cannot believe it. You cannot believe that tobacco was praised as being good for your health. And it was. Yeah. Isabel, let's switch gears a little bit and, and um, give us an overview of the agribusiness landscape in Asia. Is, is Asia agriculturally self-reliant or does it import from other parts of the world and will it need to continue to do so? As you know, everything is big in Asia. Uh, Asia is definitely a consumption hotspot given the growth of the region. 
And just to take macro figures, Asia is accounting for 19% of total um, food and agriculture exports, and they're importing 31%. So as you can imagine, whatever happens in Asia, and also in particular in India plus China, is, is, is playing an enormous role on the global food system. So, you know, China, for instance, um, accounts for 25% of soy consumption, 27% of meat consumption. China and India together are making up 40% of palm oil, oil consumption. Again, adopting some of those food habits from the West is, is what you're saying. Is that right? Their diets are transitioning. So they are shifting from staples to protein and other forms of high-value food items like dairy, fruits, and vegetables. But then every country appears to have a few big national manufacturers of process, processed food uh, in their own right, don't they? Are they any better or any worse than the big multinational manufacturers? Yeah, absolutely. The emerging Asian consumer wants to have a Western lifestyle. It's a portion of the population, but it's a growing one. Oh, big food is not the ugly guy. He's not a bad boy. It could be a better boy. And I would say probably the same with national manufacturers. So on the one side, um, national manufacturers are less exposed to ESG frameworks. And hence, you could argue they are less likely to be receptive to improving transparency, improving their practice in terms of sustainability. But on the other hand, they are uh, operating simpler supply chains. So they are more able to innovate faster. Um, and in a way, I'm more interested in the progress than in the status to date. I also believe beyond the big national manufacturers, I really believe, believe in the infectious power of small and medium enterprises leading the charge. They have the capacity to really make the difference. And interestingly, in the very, very um, dynamic plant-based segment, we are seeing SMEs doing an extraordinary job in changing perception of plant-based uh, food and proposing new new food forms to their consumers. So there is more than big food. Big food is important. National food manufacturers are very important, but there is a swath of smaller players who can be extremely creative and we need them to drive the change. I'm finding that uh, during the uh, pandemic um, where supply chains were interrupted, um, it gave a bit of a bump to local producers of food, that some of the local providers, because they were on the ground, could get those supplies to the grocery stores, um, and they weren't, uh, and therefore there were a shift in some loyalty among buyers who said, well, you know, it's about availability now. Um, and, and in some ways, there's an opportunity here <clears throat> for some of those local manufacturers or local of uh, bioagricultural organizations to be able to develop and deliver new food options to people. Do you think we're going to see more of that now that we have a bit of a, uh, if you will, a pulling back from globalization because of the pandemic? I don't know for how long. I completely agree with your, with your observations, but I don't know if these will be lasting trends. So on the one side, it seems like the world is moving towards more regionalizations. Uh, not every country can support itself. By, uh, with its, its food production. So import-exports will remain. But you could argue that supply chains are going to become more regional, and Asia can definitely be a driving force in that respect. Uh, every country, sorry, go ahead. Um, every country is redefining what they call food resilience. 
So for, of course, in Singapore, it's very different from, from China. But I also believe um, in you know, the stickiness you have seen vis-a-vis -vis local producers and the fact that they were praised for being on the ground, delivering the food and having, having made it possible for people to, to feed themselves during this incredible period. I've seen this um, being reversed in many countries. Um, small data points, nothing I would qualify as a trend, but I'm not sure this, this phenomenon is very sticky. I would like to, but I'm not sure it will be. Before I let you go, uh, what's your take on Impossible and some of the other plant-based manufacturers of food? Yeah, plant-based food is, is nothing new, but Impossible Food and other early players have done an incredible job in making it relevant to meat eaters. So there is practically no debate on the positive impact on the environment versus the regular animal proteins. Whether it's water consumption, uh, greenhouse gases emissions, all this is kind of a given. And the creativity in that space is incredible. And something which is very dear to me, we, we are starting to see propositions that are relevant to Asian diets. So for instance, if you come to our conference in, in September, you will see companies like Phyto Foods, and they're proposing slab of meat. So uncut real meat slabs that you can slice and dice, and it's very much palatable for, for Asian consumers. So the creativity is, is incredible. I would like to have a debate on the nutrition value of this food. I think it should be a healthier debate. At the moment, it's a little um, conflictual because these new propositions like Impossible Food and other players, they're trying to defend that they are coming up with a healthy proposition. And I don't deny it. What I'm just saying is the debate on the nutrition value of food is very often uh, second stage. It's often that you hear people talking about mimicking animal proteins, but why not inventing other food forms that would be more balanced, that would be better for you? And I guess that brings us to your conference itself, Future Food Asia. Uh, tell us a little about the conference, the, the format, and some of the discussions that will be had. So Future Food Asia is a conference we have uh, initiated in 2016 when we realized that the food system needed a, bit, a big fix, but that Asia needed to be on the radar. At the time, everybody thought nothing was happening apart from the U.S. and a little bit in Europe. So we wanted to put Asia on the map of food tech and agri-tech innovation, driven by the sentiment that whatever happens in Asia can have big impact because it has big scale. Fast forward in 2020, courtesy COVID, of course, the conference has turned virtual, but we've made the best out of it because instead of having one or two days um, in Singapore, we will throw a five-day conference, two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon, so you can have a life, you can have a job, and we will cover a wide array of topics. Alternative proteins, of course, it's a very big part of what we'll be covering, but a lot more uh, diversity of topics, and you can see this through the lenses of the 13 startups that we'll be pitching at the conference. Some are definitely into alternative proteins. You have Two amazing winners of the Buller Givaudan challenge, for instance. You have the Japanese company called Days. They are developing a miracle meat, as they call it. And they are using germinated proteins. And they are replicating the texture of various kinds of meats. Very original. And then you have another one called Let's Plant Meat, hailing from Chiang Mai, Thailand. And the founder has a very interesting stance on this. He said, you know, Chiang Mai 
has the worst air quality during the annual crop burning season. And the burning largely comes from fields growing corn and to feed livestock. So what if we could shift to another diet? And so he developed plant-based burgers. You would tell me another burger, but here is the point. They're really catering to the palates of Southeast Asian consumers. So the taste profile and the consumer experience is very different. And I like it because it shows you that there is more than just a, a silver bullet for this industry. How does the startup food industry in Asia stack up against what's going on in North America and Europe? Is it in its infancy or is it leading the way because of uh, um, just the, the, the scale and opportunity that exists in this part of the world? Food is one thing, but if you want to eat, to eat healthily, you also need to farm healthily. And this is where Future Food Asia has always tried to embrace both the upstream part of the value chain and the downstream part, which is food for me. So Asia is definitely five, 10 years behind in terms of, you know, vibrancy of the food and agri-tech ecosystem. But only five, five, 10 years will make a very big difference for Asia because Asia is, has the capacity to leapfrog. And the dynamic in the region is absolutely spectacular. Last year, we counted over a 12 months period, we counted 30 new food tech, agri-tech accelerators across Asia Pacific. 30 new programs to nurture new startups. So my bet is big on Asia. I really believe in the power of Asia to invent new solutions, which might be comparable to Western solutions, but some of them would be completely new because they're addressing very local problems. And tell us the dates again. When will your conference be held? So it will be starting on the 21st of September, which is a Monday, throughout to uh, Friday, 25th of September. We'll uh, highlight that in our show notes. And Isabel, we thank you so much for spending time with us. Wishing you the very best. Thank you very much, Stephen. Uh, have a good lunch today. That was my conversation with Isabel de Citra, CEO of ITC Capital, an investment advisory firm specializing in food innovation. I guess it should come as no surprise that food is now ripe for innovation. We've taken other consumer delights from cars to phones to clothing through rapid stages of change in design. Why not food? It's hard to generalize, but food innovation, at least to date, feels more like something engineered for mass consumption and less like a quest for higher nutritional value. The future of food points to something entirely different. It speaks to the source of our food and its implications both for our individual well-being and the environment at large. Moving the dial on how we procure, produce, and distribute food means crossing some big operational and psychological chasms. Like meat, for instance. According to the UN's Food and Agricultural Organization, global meat production is expected to double from 229 million to 465 million tons between now and the year 2050. That kind of demand is hard on the planet. Livestock hoard resources. Putting aside the issue of animal slaughter, the pressure to feed the livestock is leading to gross mismanagement of land resources. As we speak, the Amazon rainforest is burning. Why? To make way for corn and soybean production to feed livestock. That single indirect consequence of meat consumption should be enough to turn most of us to vegetarians, yet it's not. Meat consumption grows apace. For those in the know, the problem is real enough to do something about it. Not surprisingly, one of the most popular new developments in food innovation is the development of plant-based products that taste like meat, 
How many of you have sampled the Impossible Burger? It looks, smells, and tastes like ground beef, but it's not. It's an odd concept if you think about it, manipulating vegetables to taste like meat. Apparently it's popular, and considering how fast food chains like McDonald's and Burger King are now making it available, you might say it's gone mainstream. As Isabel points out, a lot of emphasis is currently placed on replicating tastes of existing foods, but the industry has the potential to do so much more. Whole new categories might soon be invented to tantalize the taste buds and delight the digestive tract. This time around, we can only hope that nutritional value earns back its rightful place. How important is it? Well, very, I'd say. The condition of the body human depends on it. We've run the gauntlet on sugary and fatty foods. They may taste good, but they're killing us too. Food innovation and the science that supports it should prove our saving grace. That failing, there's always a return to farm fresh foods. There's a movement afoot, and it's gone global, where sourcing fresh foods close to home is a viable alternative to visiting your local supermarket and stocking up on snack foods and soda. That brings us to the close of this week's episode. What are you having for lunch? Food for thought, no doubt. Thanks for listening. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. <laughs>